Listener Production. Please note this episode deals with loss and bereavement, but also provides you with the tools and wisdom to handle these situations with a little more ease. Lucy Hone is a renowned global expert on resilience and the director of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. After teaching resilience to thousands of people for many years, life gave her one of the most challenging situations. Five years ago, Lucy faced a devastating blow when her beloved 12-year-old daughter, Abby, tragically lost her life in a road accident alongside her friends, Ella and Sally Summerfield. This heart-wrenching event compelled Lucy to channel her extensive academic training and professional expertise towards fostering resilience, especially in the midst of her deeply personal and painful circumstances. In this deeply heartfelt interview, we discuss resilience, how to foster it, to be able to endure life's greatest challenges and those day-to-day struggles, strategies to deal with adversity and finding meaning in loss. Just notice the fact that someone's just dropped you around a meal. Somebody else has just driven me to the swimming pool. So just to make sure that you weren't losing the balance completely and only living in a world of negative emotions. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Lucy's TED Talk, Three Secrets of Resilient People, was one of the top 20 most watched talks of 2020. Lucy's also the author of Resilient Grieving and runs the Coping with Loss program, providing actionable tools and support for people navigating all types of loss. In its essence, this interview is about the work required in listening to the heart and connecting with that which is more meaningful. Lucy is deeply wise and shares fresh, inspiring wisdom on the toughest issues we face every day. My hope is that Lucy's words ignite the inner change you seek most and guides you to reimagine what it means to be truly free from the shackles of our fears and in the process, what it means to be human. Lucy Hone, you say resilience doesn't discriminate. So let's start there. Well... Yes, sadly, I think that's true, isn't it, Sarah? That um, you and I both know this um, from our work and from personal experience that we, I I think the phrase I use is that adversity doesn't discriminate and that we all need to know what helps us and enables us to get through tough times because sadly, tough times come to us all. I was actually just reading a research paper today that said um, 71% of people are exposed to potentially traumatic events in the life course. Mm. I wonder for you, why did you start your studies into resilience? Why was that a key area that you wanted to move forward in? 
So I first became absolutely fascinated. My initial fascination was in 2008, which was the time of the global financial crisis. And, you know, that was the first moment where I felt like everyone was using this word, saying the economy needs to be resilient and nations need to be resilient. And it was the first time I found myself thinking, we use this word all the time, is what I felt back then. Um, and yet, does anybody actually know what it means? Which kind of makes me laugh, because if I thought we were, it was the zeitgeist word of our time back in 2008, clearly I didn't have a crystal ball and had no idea what was coming. When you obviously started your work into resilience, you work through the New Zealand earthquakes and then you also worked with soldiers from war. Can you tell us a bit about that? The academic department, the psychology department that I was aligned to when I was doing my master's, I was doing a distance learning master's at the University of Pennsylvania. And when I arrived there in the fall of 2009, they had just picked up the contract to train all American forces to be as mentally fit as they have traditionally been physically fit. So that was, I just count myself so fortunate that I happened to be in the right place at the right time, watching what matters to me most, which is how do we translate the best of scientific findings so that they might actually be helpful to people in their everyday lives who were coming up against whatever challenges and tests. And so obviously there are, you know, those guys who were at the time heading off to Afghanistan. I remember thinking, wow, this is just incredible because watching how how those um, researchers in the Positive Psychology Centre at the University of Pennsylvania, how they were translating the best of science of compassion and forgiveness, um, strengths, work, emotions, positive emotions, why are they important? All of this, you know, it wasn't, they probably weren't the easiest of audiences. And so it was really inspiring for me to see, just to get an idea of how we can translate science to be useful in the everyday world, which I don't think happens enough. What did you find worked well for them, the soldiers? They were creating the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program, which was a suite of tools. And so they were teaching them to identify their own strengths so that every one of those soldiers would then understand the the potential and power of knowing your strengths and then using them more. They were doing a lot of work around emotional regulation and self-compassion and self-control, basically the entire kind of body of wellbeing science and resilience psychology um, was being delivered by the American drill sergeants and through them put out to the wider army. So I couldn't tell you specifically what they were finding useful, but that was what they were being taught. And then going back to those New Zealand earthquake, you working with a lot of the victims, can you tell us how you worked with them? So um, the first thing to understand about the New Zealand earthquakes is how plural that word is, Mm. how many of them we had, because um, as you might be able to pick up, 
I'm not from New Zealand. I'm a Londoner, born and bred. And so I had lived here, uh, I'd lived here about uh, 12 years at that point. And I, I had no idea that you just, I thought you just got one big earthquake and that was it. I had no idea that you keep getting recurring aftershocks afterwards. So we had six, I think it was five or six really big events over a five 0.0 magnitude, which means that that's another insurance claim. So, you know, the whole thing sort of starts again. And we had over 10,000 shakes in a two-year period. So um, for me, it taught me an awful lot about what it was like to live with anxiety, you know, that kind of wave of never knowing what was going to happen to you. And I didn't work with individual victims. I'm not a psychologist. I worked in public health, my PhD. So what I did do was work with all sorts of organizations and community groups for a couple of years in that post-quake period, pretty much doing exactly what they've been doing at the University of Pennsylvania, really, you know, looking at the science and thinking, well, which bits of this might be useful to us as my own communities, we endeavour to get back on our feet in that post-quake period. So I did work with um, all sorts of um, educational organisations, search and rescue teams, um, some massive, a massive construction company and an awful lot of community presentations and talks through the likes of the Heart Foundation. So it was really a question of getting people to understand that there are ways of thinking and acting that might help you when you're navigating tough times and to also get them to understand that they have to they have to try things out because personalization is really key so for them to work out which of these bits might appeal to them might actually resonate with them and fit with their world and their circumstances and their culture and then ways of getting over that knowing doing gap that of course we all had. Mm. 2014 on the Queen's birthday holiday your life changed forever. You had to harness everything that you had taught other people in one of the most horrific ways but use that information to help you move forward in life. Can you tell us a bit about what happened? Yes, yeah, so um, as you say, it was Queen's birthday weekend and we had decided three families to go and do bike a new mountain bike trail that had just opened up. And the, our kids were kind of 12 to 15, 16. Um, and we were all going to be travelling four hours south on the back country lanes of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And at the last minute that morning, our beautiful 12-year-old daughter, Abby, asked if she could hop in the car with her best friend, Ella, who was also 12, and Ella's mum, Sally, who was a really great friend of mine. And on the way down, a car sped through a stop sign at 100 kilometres an hour, crashed into them and killed all three of them. So, yeah, I, you know, I wake up a grieving mum, our family, just, well, I think really our life smashed apart, you know, our life as we thought we knew it. Um, Devastating, sickening, just terrible. 
And I did truly wonder at the time, you know, how does anyone come back from that kind of loss? And certainly the ruminating thoughts that you have in your head, you know, go on for some time. It was truly terrible. Um, I really have my doubts whether any of my training would be useful. Parental bereavement is, you know, meant to be the highest risk factors associated with any bereavement. So I really didn't, I wasn't sure how much of it would be useful, but I'm a writer and a researcher, but I mean, really am a writer. So I started writing a blog about my own experiences and testing, being my own experiment with the tools and strategies that were research informed that I'd been learning over those about sort of five years of my study and by then. And yeah, what I can tell you now is that um, everybody should be exposed to this material because when you are really up against it, it helps to understand some pretty fundamental aspects of resilience um, and it shouldn't be down to luck. How do you in a situation like that even in those first few days, choose life again? Well, I think the first thing is you have to accept the loss has occurred. And that was pretty, I'm going to say easy to do. It it was unavoidable. You know, we'd been, we went to the morgue every day that she was there to spend, to look at her and be with her. And my husband particularly didn't want to leave her on her own there which obviously we had to do but it meant we we spent a lot of time with her dead body we live here in Aotearoa New Zealand where the the custom is to bring your dead home and so we had her at home for I can't remember now whether it was about four days and I think that truly helped and and some listeners might think that sounds really grim but actually it was a game changer for us because It really allows, I think, your brain to catch up with the fact that this terrible thing has really happened. And having time with them in front of you definitely makes a difference. Um, So I think that, yeah, the, the first point is to accept that the loss has occurred. And then the second thing is to decide that you're going to do whatever you can to enable you and those close to you to get through this terrible thing and somehow survive. And we see that a lot in the resilience literature. People talk about a survivor's mentality. And it is something that you often read about that people just say, I wanted to survive. Um, I wanted to get through this. I don't know why. And I definitely had a real sense of somehow we've got to survive this and I I want to keep my family together and I don't want to lose my marriage and I uh, yeah I don't want that was the line that kept going on in my head is don't lose what you have to what you have lost and um, I was determined to 
make sure that we didn't lose more to this tragic loss. Because the percentage of divorce is very high after experiencing a childhood loss. Um, Certainly it was implied for us. Um, So I did a bit of digging on this again, actually quite recently, because I wanted to remind myself that it's not actually true. And what the research is mixed, and that is because that something, a, a traumatic loss like parental bereavement is an amplifier of your relationship. So if you already have a pretty good relationship, solid relationship where you're able to get through your differences and communicate and you understand that you're different people and that you will grieve differently, then actually there, is, there are some studies that show that bereaved parents do stay together because, of course, there's nobody else that you can share that with um, that really understands other than your partner. Um, and st- some studies have shown that parents do separate, but the um, really the discussion normally ends on the fact that it is something this traumatic. It amplifies the existing relationship. We go into the fight or flight response when something traumatic happens and, you know, that's good for short bouts if we have to run away from something or we've been in an accident or whatever it is. But when you're in a situation like you have been, how do you turn that response off? Yeah, really interesting. And actually the earthquakes taught me an awful lot about fight, flight or freeze, of course, because that's another thing I didn't know until the earthquakes came that, Yes, you you might well run, but the other thing that most people do in an earthquake is this kind of ridiculous sort of surfer sort of stance of going, ah, how bad is this? Um, so you freeze. And I became very aware in that earthquake period, particularly, as I say, it was so protracted that we really had a good two years of never knowing when another quake was going to come out of the blue. So it really did mean that your fight, flight or freeze response, that stress response, was permanently activated. And so I used to have this little phrase in my head, um, I don't remember what it was now, burn it off or tune it out, it was. So I remember one morning after a really big shake thinking, I'm going to have to just get myself to a swimming pool because I feel like I need to do something. I don't feel safe enough to run in the hills which surround mm. us here because we would get a lot of rock and debris. And so I went to the swimming pool and just thrashed up and down as much as I could. But I really remember that thinking you either have to burn burn it off, burn that stress off, or tune it out, meaning you have to find ways to distract your poor brain so that it can take a rest from thinking about those things. And the other thing that the earthquakes taught me was the importance of re-establishing as normal a routine, you know, the kind of the new normal phrase, as readily as you can. And that was so important for our our school children, our children, to, you know, see if we can get those schools back in action. And they, most of our schools were devastated in this city. They've all been rebuilt. I think it's fair to say that every school in this city has been rebuilt. Wow. When your daughter died, how did you not every day lose it in front of your children 
and that become the norm? How did you get yourself back together to be able to be the mother for them? Well, I think being the mother for them means that I, um, that they saw all of me. Um, they were 14 and 15. Um, I, I certainly did lose it in front of them. Um, of course. Reasonably yeah. often. Yeah, I didn't hide that. But I, but I also did hide, you know, some of the depth of emotion because they went back to school pretty quickly and I wanted to enable them and allow them to to stop thinking about a death all the time. So we just muddled along, which is what families do really. And I, you know, it's not pretty, it's not easy. Um, and I think my husband and I decided that we would attempt to live and grieve at the same time with a pretty high degree of self-compassion. Um, it wouldn't have been his word he would have used at the time, but, uh, you know, for me, I knew that's what we were doing. So we both went back to work, I think, about six weeks after she died. and But we also both agreed that if we couldn't cope and we couldn't face the world and we really did have moments where we just needed to stay under the duvet, or shut out the world, then that's what we would do. So we were pretty kind to ourselves, and we lowered the bar. And we run a program called Coping with Loss, and we always talk to our, um, yeah, to our clients there about lowering the bar, really, or even shifting the goalposts to something else that we talk about, knowing that your life has changed and what you thought was important and what you were doing has completely shifted. So it's kind of getting your your head around the idea that you have different um, different goals, different um, ambitions now, and to kind of drop the lofty stuff and know that any day we were mainly functioning was a good day, mm. was good enough. What brought you the most comfort during that time? Um, Netflix and reading. And my, I mean, obviously, my husband and most supportive people. Possibly, I should say those first. But that is the yeah. so. What brought me the the numbing? Mm. Um, yeah. So I guess that is my my gut reaction to that is what brought me the comfort was being able to numb the pain. It's funny, isn't it? You'll catch yourself going, "Oh wow, I didn't think about it for five minutes." When it becomes so all consuming, and you think like. I have not stopped thinking about this for every second of every day that I've been awake. And then that numbing allows you for a couple of minutes to mm. almost be free. Yeah. And we're, we're both Kindle readers and that really helps. So, you know, any time I'd wake up in the night and couldn't face that incessant thinking about her, I'd just, you know, put on, get reading and then I'd fall back asleep again. And um, so I think those things really did help. Sleep is such an important thing and especially for your mental health. And I wonder, like, after a tragedy like this, how do you manage to go to sleep and, and not be woken up? How does that not become the norm? I don't remember. I remember waking and reading. I remember how much my hair fell out and... I say that because I remember every morning looking at my pillow thinking, oh, Jesus, that's just, 
and almost embracing it in some ways because you, you, it was the physical manifestation of how much your body was physically shocked. Um, and it did so for a long time. My hair kept falling out. But um, I don't remember having any addition. You know, I'm a middle-aged woman. <laughs> we struggle with sleep. Um, and I have a pretty full-on work life, which doesn't help my sleep. So I'm, I'm reasonably used to waking at two or three, reading for five minutes and going back to sleep. Yeah. I don't remember my sleep being much worse back then. I was exhausted. Mm. And that is one thing I do remember. And certainly with all our clients, you know, you all know this, I don't need to tell you this, but grief is exhausting, hey, Sarah? And mm. we need to, I think people fail to recognise how exhausting it is. And I often... I slept, for a long time, I slept in the afternoons. I'd forgotten that, but for a long time, I did. I'd go back to bed. And what are the tools that you, I know now, teach others, but what are those resilience tools that you used on yourself that helped you get through? So I think the ones that I used on myself, which we also teach, um, are the, the first thing that came to me after the girls died was to be really careful and deliberate about what I was choosing to focus my attention on and to get really de deliberate about that and know that while I, of course, we were experiencing every kind of negative emotion and that was understandable, to understand that if we, whenever I could think about what was still good in my world, you know, like accept the good, we've got this big poster, right? neon pink poster in our kitchen that someone gave us at the time. And I, I know for my husband that that is really his language, that, he's, that really resonates with him to remind him to also tune into what is still good in your world, even in your darkest days. And so, you know, I hope your listeners don't think that's kind of simplistic gratitude because it wasn't. We knew what we were up against. We knew how terrible everything was. But it did just remind me not to quash the good. Um, and I, at one point, I, in a bleak while, I remember putting three river stones in my pocket. And during the day, I would kind of bump into them and I'd make myself think, what's good? You know, who is there for you? Notice the, just notice the fact that someone's just dropped you around a meal. Somebody else has just driven me to the swimming pool to go and do six lengths because it's probably all I could manage. But um, so just to make sure that you weren't losing the balance completely and only living in a world of negative emotions. Um, and then to help us do that, I invented a, what I called a two what if rule, which is, you know, I'd let myself go, what if I hadn't booked that trip away? Mm. What if I hadn't um, let her get in the car that day? And then I'd think, okay, you've done your two what ifs. Is that helping or is it harming you? And um, that question from cognitive behavioural therapy was a real mainstay for us too, just working out, um, you know, everything, going to see the driver's trial. Would that help or would it harm us? Um, looking at photos of Abby late at night, did that help? Or did it harm us? And it's just a, such a great question because it puts you mm. back in the driver's seat of your mental health. Your husband chose to see the man that 
killed your friends and your daughter. Was that something that ended up bringing him, you know, a level of comfort? Um, In truth, I'd need to re-ask him, but I know that it was um, the response to a deep urge in him that, you know, we were offered a restorative justice session and I asked myself, will that help me or will it harm me, thinking "Mm, I I don't think it's going to particularly help me. I want to just forgive him and Mm. keep him a really small part in this dialogue in my head. Um, And asking the same question, my husband Trevor thought, yeah, actually it would help me. I really want to go and meet him. And he spent they spent two hours together. Um, Honestly, I'd have to ask him now whether it gave him much comfort, but I think he was, um, it it was definitely a sort of a no-brainer for him. You know, he felt a deep urge to do that. You mentioned forgiveness before, and I know a lot of forgiveness is not about actually forgiving the person as such, it's about letting yourself free. And I think that's just such a powerful, powerful thing. But I wonder, how did you muster up forgiveness for this man? Um, So what I would say is that forgiveness came automatically to all of us um, immediately in a police car drove us home. Um, I think we all knew in that way that families do, you know, we were all on the same page with that. We instinctively felt that no good would come from blame. Um, And I know my 16-year-old eldest son, Ed, wrote a piece on Facebook immediately afterwards saying, I think his words were something like to blame. If you blame the driver, you just don't get it. Mm. And his point was that we're all human and we all make mistakes. I think it's important for people to hear that in a situation like yours, that you are able to forgive someone and how that is an important piece in grieving and moving Mm. forward in your life. Because, you know, there's this Mm. beautiful tale where there are these two Japanese men walking through the forest and one of them says they've both been in war and one says, you know, did you forgive your captor? And he said, no, I will never forgive my captor. And then the other man says, well, he still has you in jail then, doesn't he? Mm. I think it's, you know, so powerful for people to hear that, that they may not be in the situation that you were in, but they hold this like anger. And we all know that when we hold those emotions that they later on in life can lead to illness as well. Mm. I think you make a really important point. Yeah, it is really important. I know that one of the points you talk to in regards to resilience is really powerful and it's about why not you? You know, Mm. not what was me, Um, which most people would go into thinking like, why did this have to happen to me? There are people out there that have perfect lives. Nothing ever happens to them. But you believe that that is not the way to think it. It's it's like, why not me? Well, I think this comes down to the fact that when we lost the girls, I was already um, very familiar with the resilience research that shows that so many people are exposed to potentially traumatic events um, as I say, this you know, recent study in 2021 says 71% of people. And uh, to demonstrate that, that is why at the beginning of my TED talk, I get people to stand up if they've ever had their heart broken, if they've ever lost someone they truly love. And then honestly, if, if 
it, you know, it doesn't take long to list them all, does it? Divorce, dementia, um, so many different ways that life gets us. And I, and within a minute in my TED talk, everybody, mm. all 1,500 people are standing. And it does make a very poignant and powerful point that sadly adversity doesn't discriminate. You know, if you are alive, the chances are you're going to have some tough times. And then the point being that if you know that in your bones, it does diminish that why me voice. Um, you know, it stops you from, or it helps you feel less singled out is probably more accurate. Mm. I wonder now, like, how do you find joy? Has that changed or is it through the same things? No, um, it hasn't changed, but it's a really good question because I, I lost joy, <laughs> but I really, I, I did lose that kind of high valiance of, of positive emotions for some time. You know, I'd almost say certainly two, almost three years of n not really feeling that spontaneous, free um, sense of joy. I've, I've felt I'd experienced pride and inspiration and lots mm. of other positive emotions and certainly awe, you know, awe-inspiring scenery would really help me. But um, so I do, I remember, um, yeah, it was at the most first moment where I actually thought, ah, oh, that's joy, was at that Bruce Springsteen concert when he finally came back to Christchurch, which he said he would do post-quakes. Um, and as a family, we're, um, we're all very into our music. And so I love Bruce Springsteen. I understand why he would bring you joy. <laughs> Yeah, and just dancing and feeling free and it was a summer's night and all of Christchurch was out and it did feel like one of those moments that we'd all gone through so much together. It was almost collective joy. Um, but um, running, you know, um, being outdoors, being an adventure, um, I think that running with fantastic house music pounding in my ears still brings me joy. How do you believe is the best way for children to become more resilient? I think people think if we can get them young, being resilient, it will help them as adults. Yes, and yet equally we live in an era of perfectionism, don't we, where we expect them just to kind of make all the right decisions mm. and we think we have to model these perfect lives for them. So I think one of the ways you can help your families find what works for them in resilience is to let them fail, you know, we often talk about this, but it's really true to let them struggle, do things wrong, work out um, how that's impacted them and what they could do differently. And I think as a parent, you can certainly draw their attention to it. Um, so if they've got through a particularly tough time, it's definitely worth pointing that out to them saying, you know, hey, a few, few weeks ago, you were really down in the dumps or you were just completely frazzled by this thing that was looming in your life of friendship concern or, you know, a big exam or something. You know, I want to draw your attention to the fact that that's, that state isn't permanent and that you've got through it and look, it's great mm. to see you laughing again and um, let's hold on to that for all of us in life that we get these dips and um, peaks and troughs and that is part of living. So I think it's important to normalise it. Um, and you can also build their self-efficacy, which is part of the bedrock of 
um, our capacity for resilience by pointing out to them when they're going through something tough where they might have had to navigate something similar or not even that similar, but where they've gone through something in the past and remind, get them to remind themselves of what were the ways of thinking and acting mm -hmm. that helped them then. Um, and building up that self-efficacy in them, that confidence is what self-efficacy is, um, confidence that they can get through this current challenge based on past experience is definitely um, a good way that, that parents can build resilience in their children. Do you believe in the statement from your own experience of grief, this too shall pass? Um, I do. Well, so, yeah, I mean, I used to use a slide with Gandalf saying this too shall pass. Um, I think it is because that is part of giving people hope and belief that they can get through something, that it won't always be this way. I think it is an important way to reduce that sense of helplessness that we are travelling down a road that has many ups and downs and many adventures and there will be roadblocks and U-turns and all of that and that actually is just part of a typical life and that this too shall pass meaning that there will come a time when this particular challenge is in your rear view mirror and you might want to learn from it and it's probably shaped you, but it is in your rear view mirror. What do you think you've learned from it? I've, I've learned so much. I lost my mum when I was 30 and I've lost my brother in the last few years and my father too. So I've Certainly grief and death has taught me about what is what matters in life um, and I know what matters um, and that is the three men in my life, um, my two beautiful sons and my amazing husband um, and I prioritise them. I don't work weekends um, and I, I just prioritise them and I think that's really what it taught me. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I remember talking to Scarlett Lewis, whose son Jesse died in the Sandy Hook massacre, and she said that someone in the days after came over who had experienced loss as well in a, not the same way, but also in a shocking way. And she had said to her, you know, this will happen and this will happen, and it was all really bad. And Scarlett said to herself, I am not, this is not going to be my life story. Like even though mm. she obviously has a foundation for Jessie now and does keynotes and all that kind of stuff, but it, that story of complete and utter misery for the rest of her life was not going to be her story and it wasn't her story. So, you know, it's so inspirational hearing someone like you as well to know that life changes but it doesn't mean that your life has to be terrible from then on in, not at all. No. Um, and what I like to tell myself is that I can, of course, look forward and see and imagine and miss all the bits of Abby's life that we won't get. Um, and I can still, you know, feel sad and grieve those. But what I can't imagine is all the batshit crazy good stuff <laughs> that will happen and has happened since she's died, the people who have come into our lives. Um, and we've had some pretty magical moments as a family. 
And I hold on to that, that, you know, you, yeah, you can't imagine the future. Um, and if anything, what all of this has taught me is that it is possible to live and grieve simultaneously. Mm. And that's what I wish people knew. If people listening are wondering just like, how can I become a more resilient person? Are there some things that they can do? So they can read my book, Resilient Grieving, <laughs> without being silly. And I, I was I was commissioned in 2019 by Pam McMillan to rewrite it as Resilient Living. And it's a work in progress. <laughs> so I've done a first draft and it was too academic. And um, I'm, I think I am about to revisit it so that it is an expanded version of Resilient Grieving. Um, so certainly I think self-awareness is really important um, to build up an idea of what helps and what harms your mental health. Um, to certainly build your social support mm. networks and your connections. And we always used to say when I was at Penn, they said to us, you know, you don't learn those, you don't do that at 3 a.m. Um, and so when the earthquake, the first earthquake we had struck here, it was, I think it was 4.20 a.m. And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, this is not the right time to be building your social support web you do have to do that in the good days so that it is there for you in the tough times. Um, so, yeah, so look after, um, know that other people matter. Um, make sure you've got strong, supportive connections, ideally diverse, strong, supportive mm. connections. I've just been working with women's sport organisations over here, and that's such a great thing about women's sport is that it gets us to meet, or any sport, it yes. gets you to meet people different to yourself. Mm. I think that's really critical. How do you manage through life now? How are you? Um, I'm really good. Um, I'm really, I was going to say I'm, I'm really lucky. Um, I, yeah, we, I'm lucky to have the boys and they've grown up and I'm loving that because they're no longer 14 or 15, which was, you know, those, those years are pretty challenging in the post-school university years yes. when they went off raging um, and they're very much in my life and I spend a lot of my time in Auckland where they live working so I get to see them regularly and yeah I mean I do fantastically meaningful work mm. which not everyone can say so I'm very grateful to that for that and um, yeah so life's, life's, life's completely good I mean obviously I wish Abby was in it in truth, I can't imagine her being in it, which is really sad. I've really, you know, it's been nine years. I've really learned to live without her. Um, so it is just um, a different life. I think there's something very pertinent in that giving back piece as well. So, you know, in a job like you have or I have, you almost feel like even if there was no money attached to it, you would still do it because it brings you so much joy and happiness. And they say, if ever you're down, go help someone else. And that can bring you to a state of happiness a lot faster. And I wonder how that's helped you. Oh, it's so true. It absolutely is so true that we were told, you know, about the five stages of grief. We were told to write off five years of our life to the, to her loss that we were now prime candidates for divorce, mental illness and family estrangement. And so my mission now is to give the bereaved a different prescription and different perspective and to give them hope and belief and agency through the tools that we teach 
that they can actually get through this, that, you know, most people get through bereavement without requiring medical attention or any professional help. Um, And, you know, I don't want to lighten that and say, oh, you know, it's so easy because bereavement is frankly sucks. Um, And it's, it's tough for a long time, but humans have this incredible capacity to cope with loss. I truly do believe that we are hardwired to cope. It's in our DNA. We have done so throughout all of human history. You know, it's as fundamental to being a human as eating, breathing, and drinking are. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on a, definitely on a mission to help other people find better ways to grieve um, and find what works for them in their loss. And that, in some ways, you're right, it makes something good come out of the bad, doesn't it? It helps to make sense and meaning from Abby's loss. What is the best advice that you have ever been given? I think the mantra that comes to my head most now that I was given by somebody else, actually when we were at UPenn, was the director of the program used to tell us um, to trust the process, James Powelski. And um, while it sounds simplistic, it is what I come back to that, and I think in a way that it, it, I use it to encourage me not to think that I have to have life completely planned out and to not try and force life to take a shape that, you know, to be less hopeful and more curious, if that makes sense, to, to be more curious about how life unfolds and let it unfold, which is kind of ironic because also all of my training is about encouraging myself and everybody around me, those we train, to focus their attention on what they can change and influence and somehow accept what they can't. But yet trust the process, I think to me, is how you live with the vulnerability of also knowing that you can't control everything. Mm. What is something that you wish, Lucy, for yourself? Oh, love and happiness, always. Mm. That's that's the lines in the song from when I was first um, in the 90s and I first met my husband. And I guess I've gone, I probably would expand that to meaning and purpose and all those things. But um, all I care about really is, and that's not fair, it's not, what I care most about is that my boys um, live good lives and that I'm in, we are in contact with them and get to see them their lives unfold. That's my deepest dream. What's your greatest hope for society today? Such a good question. Okay, well, so let me translate that into what really gets my goat. (laughs) What gets my goat is that we do an awful lot of training around helping organisations reduce burnout and equip their staff to better cope with um, prevent burnout and I guess so what what is my hope is that organizations rapidly start to say no to things that will give shareholder revenue and that they stop putting shareholder revenue first and instead put the Mm. people in that organization Mm. first. I wonder if you have a favorite prayer or saying or mantra. 
I credit my brother with this, but I recently read an old letter of mine to discover that my sister had sent it to my brother. Um, so as I say, my brother died really early, really young with dementia in his 50s, which was so sad. And he was a huge inspiration for me growing up, for all of us. And he used to, um, so the, the, the line is, and I don't know where it comes from, is um, that sometimes we'll sail with the wind, sometimes against it. But sail we will, not drift nor lie at anchor. And um, I think that speaks to the agency that is so much part of who I am and my work and the training we do to encourage others to find a way through. That's so beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? Also, actually, I'm probably better qualified literally to answer this question the most because I did my PhD looking at psychological flourishing, which is those kind of top, you know, the top percentage of people who really are feeling good and functioning well. So um, living well psychologically. So I guess a life of greatness is um, those people who have found their purpose mm. um, are using their strengths. I've always been fascinated in strengths, knowledge and strengths use. That's kind of what got me into this field in the first place, one of the things. And I truly believe, and my research backs this up, that if you know your strengths, you are nine times more likely to be flourishing. And if you use your strengths, you are 18 times more likely to be in that kind of life of greatness bucket. So um, I guess that is what I want for people is to to know their strengths and find ways to use them as much as they can in every day in work, love and play. Lucy, thank you for using your strengths to help so many people in this world. Thank you also for the beautiful conversation today. Truly, it's been an honour to talk to you. Um, I love your work and love your podcast. And thank you to all those people listening who no doubt are endeavouring to discover their life of greatness. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.